And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today on this Martin Luther King Day, we are resharing a morning show interview that was recorded and initially broadcast way back in 2005. For the next few minutes here on WGTD, I am excited to speak with Kevin Boyle, who is an associate professor of history at Ohio State University and the author of several different books, most recently a fascinating, uh, inspiring, and troubling story uh, which he calls Arc of Justice, a saga of race, civil rights, and murder in the jazz age. And uh, the story here is one which uh, I knew absolutely nothing about, but it turns out to be a a very important moment in uh, the history of race relations in the United States and uh, was one of those moments which probably contributed in in, uh, in, in various ways to uh, some of the advancements which uh, eventually uh, d- did occur uh, later in the 20th century. It surrounds uh, the case of, uh, of an African-American uh, trying to make his way in the world and uh, instead finding uh, great resistance from, uh, from certain whites. And uh, that clash of, of, of culture uh, is told uh, very, very uh, vividly and movingly in this book called Arc of Justice, which is published by Henry Holt and Company. And Kevin Boyle, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much for having me. I love the title of the book, and uh, I'm not familiar with this uh, quote uh, from which it is taken. Explain the title, Arc of Justice. Sure. The quote comes from a 19th century abolitionist, but it became famous because Martin Luther King made it a common part of his speeches. And the phrase... The saying goes that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The idea being, I guess, that uh, that there is uh, often reversal after reversal after reversal, all kinds of frustrations, right. but this idea that at the end things will eventually begin to resolve exactly. towards towards right, towards justice. Yeah, that the struggle for equal rights in the United States has been a long and difficult one, but there is that kind of hope of a final triumph. Tell me what familiarity you had with this particular story uh, about this man from the South named uh, Ashen Sweet. It's a story I, It's a story that takes place in 1925, and it takes place in Detroit. That's the center of the story. And Detroit is my hometown. So it's a story that folks in Detroit at least had heard of. It was part of local history. And really the tricky part for me was realizing that no one outside of Detroit had ever heard this story. So it was a story that you read in the newspaper once in a while. You see somebody write, remember the sweet case. And so it was just kind of part of memory. So you had at least a vague sense that uh, that this had occurred and probably knew something about it. But your task was to tell it in a compelling way so the rest of us would pay attention to it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And for me, it was also a great learning process because, like you said, I had a vague sense of it the way people do when you see something in passing, but I had no idea of the richness of the story until I started to do the work on the book. One of the choices you make as an author uh, is to try to set the stage for this specific story by giving us some sense of what American cities were like back in the 1920s, cities like Detroit. Apparently you believe that that is essential to us really understanding the dynamics that were at play here. 
Exactly, because what Dr. Sweet's story is part of really fundamental transformations that sweep across not just Detroit, but almost every big city in the United States in the 1910s and in the 1920s. And the critical, the two critical parts of that story, one is that there was a massive, massive migration of African Americans out of the rural South and to the big cities, particularly starting in World War One. And as that migration occurred, and as black populations in cities across the North soared, then suddenly the cities became sites of segregation in ways that they hadn't been prior to the Great Migration. Black populations were tiny, and now all of a sudden they weren't. And whites, as the population soared, began to insist on a level of segregation, not only in Detroit, but in New York, in Chicago, in Milwaukee, in Cleveland, that really hadn't been there before. And that's a huge change, and that's the background for mm. what happens to Dr. Sweet. Yeah, you mentioned the fact that, that earlier than that, there was absolutely no, or basically, no formal segregation in any of these cities. And then all of a sudden there is this population and then it's as though, uh, at least in many cases, these city leaders would sort of scramble around to, to assemble something which, which would uh, keep things, I suppose, in their mind in, in some sort of orderly state. Yeah, and really the pivot in the North, unlike the South, I mean the South, the pivot of segregation is so much kind of public places, drinking fountains, restaurants, theaters, buses. But in the north, the pivot becomes the neighborhood. That prior to the Great Migration, there were black neighborhoods, but there were black neighborhoods in the same way that there were Polish neighborhoods or Italian neighborhoods, which meant that maybe half the population of a given neighborhood would be black or Polish or Italian, and the rest wouldn't be. Hmm. Then all of a sudden, as the Great Migration increases, whites decide that they don't want to live next to blacks anymore. And if an African-American had been well-to-do, like Dr. Sweet was, generally they lived, oftentimes, they lived in completely white, otherwise completely white neighborhoods. Now all of a sudden, white people decide, well, they don't want this anymore. They want the neighborhoods to be all white, and then, which means, of course, some neighborhood has to be all black. Hmm. And that becomes the center of segregation in the North, which is very different than the segregation of the South but it's still segregation. Right. It's interesting, too, you, it, it, when, when you help explain how this was accomplished, uh, you say that uh, no one coordinated the businessmen's practices and the homeowner's uh, actions. They spread by quiet agreement, sealed by a handshake in the boardroom, a directive from the home office, a conversation over coffee in the neighbor's kitchen. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes, an, in, makes this in some ways even more... Uh, insidious, because it would be, uh, in many cases, sort of an unspoken code. Yeah, that's a great point, really, because in the South, as terrible as segregation was, and it was awful, it was absolutely awful, it was a public process. It was a political process led by political leaders. And so they were very upfront about what they were doing. But the Northern system of segregation, it happens in such a kind of quiet way. It happens in... Um, these informal means. There's never a political debate over whether we should segregate neighborhoods. It doesn't become a fact of law. It becomes a practice of business communities. And by doing that, it becomes then absolute. You tell us about Detroit in the 1920s. And this is, of course, in some respects, the heyday of your 
hometown. Boy, isn't it. <laughs> yeah. Tell us more about, to help us understand this moment in Detroit history. Well, if you've been to Detroit lately, anytime in the last 20 years, really, it's a city that's really struggled tremendously with economic problems. Detroit 1920s was the great boomtown in America. It was the home of the cutting-edge industry. It was the Silicon Valley of the 1920s because it had the automobile industry, which was the great growth industry of that age. And so the population was absolutely skyrocketing, and it was drawing, the city was drawing people from around the world. If I may interrupt, I love when you say Ford's triumph triggered the industrial version of a gold rush. Yeah, that, that's exactly it, that it's a classic kind of western boomtown on a massive scale. This had been a kind of mid-sized town at the turn of the century, and all of a sudden it rockets up to become the fourth largest city in the country. And it's just bursting at the seams with people and property values are skyrocketing and people are scrambling for space. And it's in that context that the racial dynamic takes place. Tell us about this man from the South, this doctor by the name of uh, Ocean Sweet. First of all, am I pronouncing his name correctly? They pronounce it Ocean. Ocean. But Ocean. I struggled with that for a long time. Right. That one. <laughs> well, there's a little town in Iowa where, t- close to where I grew up that's, that's called Ocean. It's oh, really? spelled the same way. Oh, how interesting. But, uh, but here it is, O-S-S-I-A-N. Uh, uh, Ocean Sweet was, uh, as, as you've already touched on, just one of many African Americans who moved from the South to the North. But, of course, he moved there under uh, different circumstances yeah. than, d- than did many others. Yeah, he's a classic American success story. There's no other way to really understand him. He was a man born into a very ordinary family, lived in the Deep South in Central Florida, His parents were small-time farmers. They owned a tiny little plot of land, and they rented out a few extra fields to make ends meet. But what they infused in their children, and Ocean was their oldest son who had lived to adulthood, was this driving desire to succeed, that if they worked hard, if they lived good lives, they could climb the social ladder. They couldn't do that in the South at the turn of the century. The system was designed not to give him that opportunity. So when he was 13 years old, they sent him away. They sent him to Wilberforce University, traditionally black college that's down near Dayton, Ohio. And in those days, they had a high school. So he got a high school education at Wilberforce. He stayed and got his college degree from Wilberforce in 1917. And that alone put him way above virtually, in terms of education, virtually anyone in America, black or white. People didn't go to college for the most part. Couldn't stop there. He went on to Howard University, the great black college in washington dc and got his medical degree in 1921 so he had become this professional man someone rising from ordinary status to the highest of professions in america could have gone back home back to bartow but he was ambitious and so he went to detroit because he knew that in detroit he could make the sort of money and build the sort of practice that he had trained himself to do had transformed himself to do that's what brought him to Detroit in 1921 and into this city that was undergoing these dramatic changes. Hmm. One interesting choice you make as an author is to uh, give us the context and then you sort of, in effect, jump to the sort of frightening climax or the first climax of this story, a a very dramatic, uh, terrifying night for Dr. Sweet and his family. Before we even tell that story, I'm just curious to know why you as the author uh, had the story unfold as, as you do in the book. 
Well, it was really important to me to say, to trace back for my own sake, and I hope for the reader's sake too, to see how Dr. Sweet's story that night is part of a long history, not simply of black America, but for his own family, to see how his trajectory rises out of these extraordinary circumstances. He's the grandson of slaves, and here he is moving up the American social ladder and doing it you know, in a very calculated way. And I wanted readers to see that what happens that one night in September of 1925 doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of a long, complicated, and really tragic history. Very good. The frightening night we're talking about is uh, a night when, when he and, and uh, other friends and, and, and family are, are accused of a murder. Yeah. Which has uh, which has occurred in this in this neighborhood, uh, but we need to get Doctor Sweet placed into this neighborhood and talk a bit about uh, the courage and I suppose many saw as his audaciousness right. in uh, wanting to live where he chose to live in Detroit. Yeah, it's a wonderful way to put it. What happens is really very simple. Doctor Sweet gets married. He marries a young woman. They have a child, and they go off to buy a house. And it's nothing more than that at the start. But the house they find, it's a very ordinary neighborhood, but it's a completely white neighborhood. This is in the summer of 1925. And what he realizes, Dr. Sweet knows, is that his crossing the color line in the summer of 1925 is a huge risk. And so when moving day comes, on September 8th of 1925, he and his wife, Gladys, ask two of his brothers, who happen to be in town, to come the night they move in to help protect the house. They bring friends in to help protect the house in case a white mob should come to drive them out. So there are 11 people in the house all together. And sure enough, the first night they're there, a huge mob gathers outside. It's a corner house. It's on the corner of a block. So they're surrounded on two sides by 100, 200 people. Neighbors who are determined they want these black people out of their neighborhood. Nothing happens the first night. There's no violence. Second night, September 9th, the Sweets and their brothers and his brothers and their friends gather again. And this time, around 8.30, just as it's getting dark, just one tiny little thing happens, and the mob starts throwing stones. Well, the Sweets are inside. They're up in the upstairs windows, and their friends are in the upstairs windows, and they have guns. They've secreted into the house ten guns, pistols, rifles. And when the mob starts to attack, they open fire on the mob. And they hit two white people. One, they injure a young man across the street, one, they kill a man who lives down the block and is standing on the lawn across the street. They hit him in the back, and they kill him instantly. And at that moment, the police, who are out on the street for crowd control, rush inside the house, and they arrest all 11 people, Dr. and Mrs. Sweet, his two brothers, and all their friends, and charge them all with first-degree murder. That's the night of terror that transforms their story and their lives. Hmm. Uh, you tell that story thrillingly well, and... Uh, and and it's it's also, it, I, I'm not sure I've ever read uh, anything like it before in which we had such a palpable sense of what it was like to be inside that home with uh, an uh, with an angry, vicious mob outside. I mean, it is just incredibly chilling to think of a law-abiding family being subjected to that, and of course. The sweets were not unique in facing that kind of hatred. 
No, not at all. In fact, that very summer, there had been four different black families driven out of their homes by white mobs, which is one of the reasons Dr. Sweet brought all those guns with him, because he knew what not only what a mob could do, having grown up in the South, but that this was a likely event. And of course, he was exactly right. Uh, what kind of uh, accounts exist about exactly what happened that night? And uh, how are you able to piece that all together? It's a great question. There's a series of steps that I went through. There are the public accounts, the newspapers, for instance, that give us repeated stories. There is the accounts that come out in the trial of what happened. And there are subsequent trials. There are oral histories taken of some of the people who were in the house, including Dr. Sweet's brother, who were done, and those are done, I think, in 1959, 1960. And then I had this wonderful stroke of luck that I found the transcript of the interrogation of all 11 African Americans who were arrested that night, all 11 people who had been in the house. They're taken to police headquarters, and they're interrogated that very night. And I found the transcript of that interrogation. So what you hear is all 11 people describing one by one to the police that night the terror they felt standing inside the house. And then one other last piece which was really important to me is I've spent time in that house. There's a family, a wonderful family that still lives there and they invited me in to see the house. And when you stand in that upstairs window of the bedroom and you look out on that street and you see how tiny that lawn is and how close that street is, then you can feel a sense of the terror they must have had that night. By the way, you mentioned that uh, it had first begun that second night as, as, I mean, as normal a night as can be if there's a mob gathered outside one's house. Yeah. But then, I forget what you said, something, something very simple occurred and they began throwing stones or something like that. Uh, can you explain what you were talking about? Sure. What happens is that Dr. Sweets, as I mentioned, there were 11 people in the house. Well, but... Eight o'clock that night, there were nine people in the house. Dr. Sweet's little brother, Otis, was supposed to be there, too, and he was supposed to bring a friend to help him. Otis had a tendency to be late to things, and he didn't show up on time. He wasn't in the house when he was supposed to be. And then around 8.30 that night, Otis arrived with his friend, and they came in a taxi, of all things. The taxi rumbles up down the street through this mob that's out on the sidewalk surrounding the house. They stop right in front of the house. He leaps out of the taxi, and so does his friend, and they run up into the, up to the front door of the house to get inside. And it's the sight of two more African Americans going into that house that seems to tip the mob, that when they see... Otis and the friend running up. And it couldn't have taken him more than a few seconds because, as I said, it's a small front yard. That's when the rocks start to flow. So it's the simplest little trigger. He was late. Hmm. Had he not been late, would something else have happened? I don't know. Wow. But that's what gets the rocks flying. Hmm. What is uh, the story from that point on is, uh, in effect, a legal thriller or a judicial thriller, if there's <laughs> such a thing. But yeah. the trial, which... Uh, ensues, and uh, this is a trial which, uh, as you as you uh, recount, uh, attracts an enormous amount of in- of attention, and one of America's most famous lawyers uh, yeah. is drawn into the fray. 
Yeah, the, what happens is that after the Swedes are arrested, word of their arrest gets to the NAACP, the great leading civil rights organization. Um, and the director of the NAACP immediately announces, for various reasons, that he will, the NAACP will defend the Swedes, all 11 of the defendants. They will mount the defense. And what they managed to do, it takes them about a month, but what they managed to do is to hire the most famous criminal attorney in the United States, possibly, well, I'd argue, in the 20th century. They hire as the Swedes' criminal attorney the great Clarence Darrow. And 1925 is the big year for Clarence Darrow because it had been that summer of 1925 that he had fought the famous Scopes trial down in Dayton, Tennessee, the great argument over teaching of evolution. And so he was at the height of his fame, and he comes to Detroit in the autumn of 1925 to defend the Sweet. The Sweet case is his next case after the Scopes trial. Hmm. Uh, how are how are you able to uh, capture for us what occurs uh, in 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 this particular trial? Uh, I mean, that seems like an obvious question, but I think no, most no, of us don't no. really understand uh, the way in which a trial can be, in a sense, relived down to such tiny details? Yeah, that's, no, it's not at all a simple question. It's actually one of the great challenges of being an historian, because you're obviously wedded to the documentation you have. But the great luck of that is that the trial has a transcript. Um, the NAACP paid to have the court recorder um, or have someone transcribe the entire trial. And so there is this thousands and thousands page document that I could use to recreate the trial, adding in material from the NAACP, which had representatives at the trial every day, from the newspapers, and through that combination to piece together the action of that entire courtroom experience. And the keys, of course, to the story are both having witnesses on the stand and they come from the neighborhood, and Dr. Sweet takes the stand himself, but also Darrow's great ability with words. That's his great hmm. gift. He's not a great lawyer, and he would admit that. He doesn't even care to learn the law particularly well, but what he did understand was how to move a juror with this kind of ocean of words. Hmm. You, you mentioned in particular uh, something which I think is interesting, that, that one of the things that Clarence Darrow was able to do brilliantly well was to take... Uh, the witnesses for the prosecution, uh, people from the neighborhood, I presume, and, and others, and you say um, Darrow transformed those who took the stand from the decent men and women the prosecution claimed them to be into idiots, city cousins of the slope-browed simpletons he and his fellow sophisticates had humiliated in the backwoods of Tennessee the summer before. Yeah. So what he does, this is a very ordinary neighborhood, this is a neighborhood of kind of the upper reaches of the working class and the lower reaches of the middle class. Dr. Sweet actually bought his home in a neighborhood where he had a much higher status than the white people. And that wasn't uncommon because he had to pay more for the house. And what Darrow does is he trades on that. He takes those people, and I don't think they were evil people, and he transforms them into fools. He makes fun of them. He humiliates them. And he uses every trick he can to do that. And, of course, they're terrified. Here they are sitting in a courtroom. They've, most of them probably have never been in a courtroom before, and they have this famous person in front of them, and it's easy to do. And then what he manages to do at the same time is he shows the jurors, who are all white, Dr. Sweet, 
as this incredibly successful man, an articulate man, an educated man, and he plays on the contrast. He says to the jurors, who do you want to identify with? Those people, those idiots who live on Garland Avenue and for some bizarre reason think they're better than Dr. Sweet. Well, look at the two of them, the two groups, and you decide who's better and who you want to identify with. That's part of the defensive strategy, and it's brilliant. Hmm. We should mention that at, at several points in the book, you you tell us very honestly that the, the central protagonist, Dr. Ocean Sweet, was not a particularly likable person. Nice. And, uh, and, and that's clearly something you think that it's, it's worth us knowing, and that's something that, that yeah. is worth your acknowledging as the author here. Well, I think it's a combination of things. Partly, it's the truth. It would be wonderful if you had your chief protagonist being the embodiment of all virtue. Um, but he wasn't. He was a difficult man in a lot of ways. He was a man who had achieved great things and knew it and didn't mind letting you know it. Hmm. And that can be an annoying thing. And, you can, and it comes across in the letters that you see from him in some of his actions. He could be an arrogant man. The other point, though, I guess, from that is that we have a tendency, I think, when we write history, to want to see everybody is either good, all good, and all bad. And people aren't. They're human. And history is a human story. We need to see people who do great things for the wrong reasons sometimes. And we need to realize that people have complex characters in the same way that all of us do. Hmm. That doesn't change simply because they're figures in the past. We should mention the fact that... um the story is, is also complex in terms of what unfolds once a verdict is finally reached. Can yeah. we say what the verdict is, or would you rather leave oh. that as a secret for well, our of listeners? Of course, it would be wonderful to leave it as a secret, but I'm sure I'll be happy to. Um, and it's up to you. <laughs> no, no, no. There, let me put it this way. There are two trials. The first trial ends in a hung jury. That's of all 11 of the suspect, of the defendants. The second trial is just of one. It's of uh, Ocean Suite's little brother, Henry. Henry, on the night of the murder, admits he fired into the crowd. None of the other defendants will tell the police that. But he says, well, yeah, they were going to kill us. I shot at them. And so they put him on trial, assuming that if they can't convict him, they can't convict anybody. And they don't. They can't convict him because Darrow managed to get him acquitted. It's an extraordinary thing. Twelve white men on that jury box agree that Henry Sweet had the right to defend that home from a white mob, even if it meant killing a member of that mob. Hmm. Uh, one would hope that uh, that life would proceed uh, easily and happily for the Sweet family after that, and yeah. unfortunately, uh, various kinds of unhappiness uh, do intrude. But of course, uh, remaining central to the story and its significance is the fact, as you say, that, that uh, such a verdict could be reached at that time and place under such circumstances. Uh, help us understand what the ramifications of this were uh, beyond uh, those who were directly involved? Well, that's the, in some ways the tragic of the part of the story, because what happens is that this is an incredible triumph for the NAACP, for Darrow, and of course for the Sweets. They're saved from life in prison, which is what they would have been facing. On the other hand, the very issue that they confronted, the very issue that was at the heart of this and where we started talking today is the segregation of cities, the division of cities into black and white, separate and unequal. And that issue 
did not get resolved in the African-Americans' favor, that the segregation of cities marched onward. It became solidified. This case didn't stop it. And in fact, the Southern system of segregation in the United States obviously is dead and gone. No one drinks from separate drinking fountains today. Nobody rides in the back of the bus because law tells them they have to. But the segregation of cities remains largely in place. And of all of America's cities, the most segregated city in America today is Detroit. And there's the tragedy of the story, that the issue, in fact, was lost while the case was won. The book, again, is called Arc of Justice, A Saga of Race, Civil Rights, and Murder in the Jazz Age. It's published by Henry Holt and Company, and its author, Kevin Boyle. Kevin Boyle, I congratulate you on a really superb book, and I'm glad we got to talk about it today on The Morning Show. I thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity.